All right, so we are in uh, this series in Mark's Gospel, and working our way through it, and uh, kind of looking at Jesus, and hopefully learning some things along the way. Uh, I was just thinking, uh, there are some things in the world that are hard to explain, aren't there? Driving back from Guildford a little bit earlier, uh, beautiful day, driving along the motorway, it is hard to explain how some people can be so oblivious to what's going on as they tootle along in the middle lane at 65 miles an hour. I just, I can't get my head around that. It's incredible. It's just a gift that some people have of pure focus and lack of awareness. It's it's hard to explain how ever since we moved to Chippenham almost nine years ago, there's one shop in town that has been having a sale every single day for almost nine years. And if you live here, you probably know which one I mean. I'm sure it's a good shop. I do buy things from there periodically, but every day it's having a sale. It's hard to explain how some people think that peanut butter smells good when it clearly doesn't at least in my opinion (laughs) but or or why some people don't like the taste of Nutella I mean that's bizarre like how can you not like that stuff that's that's heaven sent and so there's all these kind of mysteries in the world some of which are probably more important than those but we're going to look at a passage today in Mark's gospel that is an absolute head scratcher it comes in Mark chapter 8 and uh, I'll read it to you and It may not be immediately obvious why this is a head-scratcher until I explain it. And then then hopefully we'll all get confused. And then hopefully, before the end of the message, we'll all get unconfused, whatever the word is for that. And um, we'll see something about Jesus, which is obviously the most important part. So Mark 8, I think it's on page 843. Yep. And starting at verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them he said that the uh, these also should be given and set before them and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. It's kind of a straightforward story if you're into Bible stories, right? It sounds kind of familiar. In fact, Mark makes sure it sounds familiar because he puts the word again in verse 1. There was again a large crowd. And it's kind of the the head scratcher here for me is how, how did the disciples kind of go through this story And answer the questions the way they did. How did they handle the situation the way they did? Because here was a crowd again. Just in in chapter 6 or two Sundays ago, all age service, depends how you look at it. But not far before, there had been a crowd of of 5,000 men plus women and children. And they had five loaves and two fish and Jesus fed them and the disciples got to be right at the heart of that. They got to count the people, sit them down, distribute the food, pick up the leftovers, bring back the baskets. I mean, they they were right there uh, experiencing the whole thing. And now there's a crowd of people. 
and some bread and some fish and some rumbly tumblies and like this kind of a setup surely like this is the same thing boys and yet when Jesus says okay we need to feed them their response is how are we going to feed them is that you ever read through Mark and kind of scratched your head like why I mean surely is this just one of those moments where Jesus is just teeing the ball up so that the disciples can hit it like come on you've had a pretty bad run you've done fairly poorly on some of the tests that we've done but here let me give you an easy one is that what's going on here that Jesus is saying all right guys there's a crowd got some bread got some fish how are we going to feed them and they look at each other and scratch their heads and kind of go I don't know there's no shop anywhere near here I just can't get my head around this it just seems like a strange situation doesn't it when just a few weeks before They'd been so at the heart of one of the great miracles of Jesus' ministry. And now we've got a smaller crowd. We've technically got more bread, although it's still obviously a miracle. Seven versus five is not that helpful when it comes to feeding a crowd with rolls. But still, they've got more bread. They've got some fish, not two fish. They've got 4,000 people, not way over 5,000. Everything about this says this is easier as far as miracles go. And yet the disciples miss it. Well, maybe the answer to why they missed it is not within the 10 verses. So let's go back and look at a paragraph across the page, chapter 7, verse 24. Chapter 7, verse 24, it says, And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the table Sorry, even the dogs under the table, they don't want to eat the table, that'd be bad, wouldn't it? Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Right. How is that going to help us clarify the first story? Doesn't that just make it worse? I mean, with the feeding of the 4,000, the disciples seem to be slightly dense. Is that fair enough? Like they seem to be missing the obvious. But now we've just read this passage and Jesus seems to be slightly rude. And frankly, not slightly. It just, doesn't that make you feel uncomfortable? The children need to be fed first, not the dogs. I mean, come on, Jesus, you can't say that to a woman. That's so inappropriate. So politically incorrect, isn't it? We would never say something like that. Surely, actually, this may not help massively, but... But just to kind of rescue Jesus slightly from, from the apparent rudeness, the word he uses there for dogs is, is, in some languages, you can kind of change the ending of a word and you can make it sort of smaller, the diminutive. Okay, so it's the diminutive of dogs. So he's not kind of referring to, uh, to this person really as like a wild dog, like a rabid, nasty, kind of scavenging thing out on the streets. It's more like a pet dog. Does that help? Not really. 
And it doesn't mean like a little Yorkshire Terrier. It just means like a, you know, a loved within the home dog. But, but really it's awkward, isn't it? It really doesn't kind of solve the problem. Actually, the problem is that we're coming to the story with 21st century English culture lenses where a dog would be a real insulting word for a woman. So we think it's because this is a woman. Actually, that's not the issue at all. Tim, would you be able to go and collect our weekly miraculous delivery of bread? Which seems to be coming, and praise the Lord for that, right? Um, So actually, what Jesus is referring to here is not the fact that she's a woman, but the fact that she's a Gentile. From the Jewish perspective, they had a kind of a straightforward way of viewing the world. There were Jews and there were non-Jews. Or to put it in kind of Jewish colloquial terms, there were Jews and there were dogs. The kind of street scavenging, dirty, unclean creatures. That's kind of the way the Jews viewed the world. And so Jesus here, when he says this to this woman, it's not that he's calling her a dog. He's effectively calling Gentile a dog. Does that make it better? Not really. Still kind of awkward, isn't it? The best that I can see here is that obviously Jesus knows that he's the Messiah and he knows that he's the Son of God and he knows that he's not supposed to sin and we know that he didn't. So this cannot be sinful even though it feels uncomfortable. I think Jesus is setting this woman up to demonstrate her faith. What we don't know is what had gone on before. You see, they traveled up to Tyre and Sidon. They're going out of uh, Galilee, up north, into a, a neighboring territory that is not Jewish in the slightest. And from the Jewish perspective, the, this was like the worst enemy territory. These were the people that hated them, and they hated them the most. I mean, just lots of hatred going on. The Tyrians. And I imagine that Jesus there with his disciples in this house, probably when you travel, you don't kind of fail to mention that you're traveling. I imagine the conversation may have been going on all day. Why are we here? What about the locals? What about the Gentiles? What about, what about, what about? Maybe the disciples had even been there using dog references in kind of humor, but with an edge. I don't know. But then this woman comes. She's heard about Jesus and she comes and and she presents herself and says, look, my daughter's got an unclean spirit and I'm desperate for you to heal her. Do something for her. Set her free. Maybe Jesus is making a comment to flag up the situation to the others. The children should eat first, not the dogs. And she takes that. Says, yeah, but the dogs eat the crumbs. And Jesus immediately affirms her. He says, for that statement, your daughter is well, go your way. So she goes and her daughter is, you know, the demon is gone and everything is solved. And Jesus has demonstrated his compassion. And who's left in the room? Probably a bunch of disciples, maybe feeling a little bit awkward that the dog handled it with faith. Isn't that our territory? Aren't we the people of faith? Aren't we the ones that are supposed to, like what? What's going on? Maybe Jesus was taking them on a bit of a journey. A journey in which they were discovering what was going on in their own hearts. And also what was going on in his. Well, the story carries on because then in verse 31, it says he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Now that's nicely Jewish territory again, right? Oh no, in the region of the Decapolis. 
Decapolis is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's literally, it just means 10 cities. And this was kind of a, a region of 10 small, small cities, smaller than Chippenham, that were Gentile. So this has gone from Tyre up north now to the Decapolis, from Gentile to Gentile. And now here he is in the Decapolis and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is be opened in the language Aramaic and his ears were opened his tongue was released he spoke plainly and Jesus charged them to tell no one but the more he charged them the more zealously they proclaimed it and they were astonished beyond measure saying he has done all things well he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak so having been up in Tyre and Sidon and and those who were with Jesus the disciples being there kind of following him and watching him having seen what he's done for this woman now they go to the Decapolis another awkward area for them a Gentile area and this man is given his dignity back he's able to hear and he's able to speak everyone's impressed everyone's amazed but the disciples are watching and I think the disciples were learning because I think Jesus was traveling in part to take them on a journey to discover what was going on in their hearts as well as what was going on in his then we come to chapter 8 and it says in those days no transition no different geography no different place he's in the Decapolis And there's a crowd and they've been following him for a few days. And Jesus says, look, these people are really hungry. They've got to eat. In fact, it's so bad. If they go from here, they're probably going to collapse on their way home trying to get to a place where they can eat. So we've got to feed them. And the disciples look around. No idea, Jesus. The disciples were pretty good at missing cues. They were pretty good at at being taught something and then missing the kind of test that followed. We saw it in chapter 4 with the storm. He taught them all day about the kingdom's not going to sink. And then they thought the kingdom was going to sink. So this this kind of pattern is is there. And Jesus is taking them on this journey. And it's like, okay, you've been to Tyre, remember the woman? Okay, you've been to uh, here, remember the guy? Okay, now, here's a crowd. Am I going to have compassion for these people? Does the love of God reach out beyond the Jews to people such as these? And somehow in that moment, the disciples hesitated and couldn't see it. It revealed that they were kind of typical, typical of the Jewish people, typical of all of us. You see, all the way through the Old Testament, God's plan had been revealed time and again that his plan was not just to to call out this one nation or one man and create a nation. He did that, but even when he called him, the man Abram, 2,000 years before, he said to him, in you, I'm going to make a nation of you, but in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It was always God's plan to reach every group of people on the planet. You fast forward and you come to the time of Jonah and Jonah was a prophet, right? And Jonah was called by God and and he was given three instructions. Jonah, I want you to arise and I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to cry out. And so he arose and he went the opposite way, remember? Went down, got on the ship, went off to sea, uh, ended up in the sea, in a fish, gut-wrenching experience, landed back on the beach, and you get to the midpoint of the book, and God starts again. Uh, Jonah, 
Three things. I want you to arise and I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to cry out the message that I give you. And so he arose and he went to Nineveh. But I don't think he cried out God's message. You read chapters three and four, there's lots of indications that Jonah couldn't bring himself to bring a message that God intended to bring to those people. The problem was that those people were hideous to him. He hated them. And so he went and he preached a kind of half-baked message from God. And then they responded and God showed mercy and it was all wonderful. There's great revival. And then we come to chapter four and Jonah is kind of sitting under this vine depressed. I knew you'd do that, Lord. I knew that you'd do that. You're the kind of God that's rich in mercy and full of loving kindness and faithfulness. And oh, it makes me sick. And basically, he's just angry because God had refused to play his game with the Assyrians. God had shown mercy to these people that Jonah actually hated. Jonah was a lot like the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are a lot like all of us. That we can easily have prejudices within us that say, God can do wonderful things to people like me. But he must have a different agenda for people that I'm not comfortable with. You come forward to the time of Isaiah. And God in chapter 49 is speaking to uh, the servant, which it turns out to be the son of God. And he's speaking to him and he says, look, it's too small a thing. It's too small a thing for you just to, to deal with the tribes of Jacob, just to, to bring Israel together. That's just too small. I'm going to make you a light to the nations. And you can go through the Old Testament and there's verse after verse after verse where God's plan was to go through the nation of Israel to reach out to the whole world to bring people from all over the planet back and to bring them into his family. That was always God's plan. And yet the Jewish people kind of had this thing where they sort of had this stuff in their hearts, you know? And so maybe the disciples didn't realize it. And yet Jesus took them on this journey to discover what was in their hearts and to show them what was in his heart. And so by the woman and then the man and then the crowd, somewhere in there, they're supposed to realize the heart of God for the nations because that's kind of the new thing that's happening in this part of Mark. There's been a a journey that they've been on and they're learning who Jesus is gradually. They haven't quite made it yet, Uh, but this is just another facet that Jesus is revealing a God who cares for all people, even the ones not like, you know, his people. And that's the way they would have seen it because, hey, we're his people. We're Jesus people, we're Jews, we are God's people, we're the ones with the scriptures, we're the ones that that God's chosen. No, surely not them too. Something on the inside. It's easy for us to, uh, to have the same thing, isn't there? Not kind of overt, nasty racism, hopefully, but, but just a sort of little hesitation on the inside when it comes to certain people. I remember in the church growing up in Bristol, there was one elderly gentleman and, and every, you always sit front left, kind of where you are, Danny. And, and every time the certain hymn was given out, he'd stand straight and kind of hard faced because the hymn had the tune of the German national anthem. He wasn't going to sing that. And it was kind of, you know, it was almost funny and he'd sort of have a little chuckle and oh, he's not singing. But, but actually, when you come to think about it, it made sense. He'd lived through the war. And, and 
probably, if you talk to him, you know, logically, he could explain, yeah, God loved the world and, yeah, all, all people, including Germans. But somehow there was something there that just kind of triggered, you know, when he heard that Deutschland, Deutschland über alles stuff kind of belting out from the piano, he just couldn't bring himself to sing a hymn. He wasn't thinking about, you know, the gospel. He was just bothered by the hymn. I think all of us have something that triggers us. I know that for me, just to to be transparent, God took me on a journey and flagged up something in my heart that I didn't even realize was really there. About 20 plus years ago, I joined the OM ship. And I knew that I'd be mixing with all sorts of different races and nationalities, and I was just excited to take the gospel to the world. When I got there, I discovered that there was something in me that was just hesitant with one group. It wasn't a color thing. I'd been raised well, and that that was not an issue in the slightest. But one nationality. And I think looking back, probably part of the reason was that when I was growing up, um, in, in our house, the news was always on, especially when Dad was home. The news was always on. And so every evening, 6 o'clock, 5.45, 6, 9, 10. I mean, I did point out that nothing ever changed, but that didn't matter. We always had it, right? Every imagine 24-hour news it would have ruined my childhood but we had this this news and it was on and so I remember the royal wedding but the first thing I really remember on the news was the Falklands War that went on for a few months didn't it and I, I, I kind of was aware of that but I was six I couldn't process that I didn't really get it what I could process was 1986 when I was 10 and England were in the World Cup and we got to the quarterfinals and one little man with his no VAR hand gesture, ruined my World Cup. Now, if that happened now, I'd just be like, oh, so annoying, typical England. But when you're 10 and you're starting to dream, it seems so silly to admit it. But you know what? Deep inside me, I just went, about Argentina. Just, it was just there. 10 years later, I joined the ship, and God gave me some friends from Argentina, and he shone a light into my heart, and I discovered, oh my goodness, there's something in me with Argentinians. And he melted that, and he changed that, and he blessed me with a friend that just became a dear, dear brother that I loved to death, and I was like, wow, thank you, Lord, I'm so sorry. Didn't even realize it was there, but there was there, and I don't know if it was the news or if it was, well, it was definitely Maradona, but there was something there, and And I I was kind of like, you know, let's take the gospel to the world, but maybe not Argentina. And I wonder what it is for you. And I wonder what it still is for me. Because the reality is that there are often things in our hearts where we kind of hold back. Maybe it's a color thing. Maybe it's a, a nationality thing. Maybe it's not something so big as that. Maybe it's something a little bit more local. Maybe it's not societies as a whole, but subsections of society. Maybe it's people who think differently politically. Maybe it's people on the other side of something that's happening at the moment and what should happen and what the outcome should be. And maybe there's a small part on the inside where you think, God so loved the world, but probably shouldn't love quite so much so-and-so. Or people who think that way. Or maybe it's not a political thing. Maybe it's um, a lifestyle thing. God so loved the world. Of all nations and all races and all colors and all creeds. Not creeds, but you know, all languages and you know, all of that. But, but not people who have that lifestyle. 
Or maybe it's not people who have that religion. God doesn't really love them. Actually, he does. And the, the, the kind of the, the religions that might stir within some of us some real tension are currently incredibly fertile grounds where the gospel is spreading and people are coming to faith in Jesus like you wouldn't believe if you saw the facts and the stats. But does that thrill us? Does that make us go, wow, God, what are you doing? That's awesome. Or is there a small part of us that goes, mm, maybe not them quite so much? You see, it could be something political. It could be something lifestyle. It could be something religious. It could be something racial. It could be any number of things. But God is going to take us all on a journey in this life. And as we follow Jesus through the pages of scripture and through the days of our lives, he's going to take us on a journey where we will discover what's actually in our hearts. And also show us what's in his. And what's in his heart is love for all people. Jesus died for people from every tribe and nation and language, people from every corner of this globe. He died for people who look just like us and who look nothing like us, for people that we find it very easy to embrace and people that actually, if we're honest with ourselves, some of us find it slightly hard to embrace. Jesus died for the sake of the whole world. And maybe we should just lean into what he wants to show us. Instead of clinging on to those little prejudices, instead of kind of clinging on to the sort of little edginess that we may feel in certain directions, maybe we can yield our hearts to him and say, Lord, I, I want to learn. Just, I, I, can, I can laugh about the guy not singing the German anthem, and I can laugh at the disciples because they're obviously idiots, but actually, Lord, that's me too. And so, so show me, shine your light into my heart and show me if there's some category, some uh, type, some subgroup, some kind of affiliation that, that makes me hesitate when it comes to you showing them your love. Because God loved the whole world, even dot, dot, dot. Who'd you put in that Even. God so loved the whole world, even Germans, yeah, even people of this kind of appearance, or even people of this political persuasion, or even people with this lifestyle, or even people who like that kind of music, or even people who address or adjust the way they look in this kind of way, or even people with that disease, or even people of that religion, yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, they get life. There's lots of mysteries in the world. Some not so important, like how some people get stuck in the middle lane and don't realize the carnage behind them. Like the fact that that shop is always having a sale and you kind of go, what's going on there? And, and even the smell of some foods. But I tell you, the greatest mystery in the world the greatest mystery in the world is that God so loved the world, even me. Even a Gentile sinner like you and me. Even a Gentile sinner with prejudices like you and me. God loved us and sent his son to die for us. 
And as we fix the gaze of our hearts on what he reveals about his heart, we'll discover that he's gradually changing what's in our hearts.